0: Guilt can be a good thing, letting you know when you've done something wrong. It can also be a bad thing when it's a crippling burden. So how can you distinguish between both? And what's the origin of guilt? This is Signs of the Times Radio with
1: Kent Kingston.
0: Well, it's great to have you here with us for another week of Signs of the Times Radio. My name is Daniel Kolbedek, and I'm joined by Kent Kingston, who wrote an article for us in the October edition of the magazine. How are you doing, Kent?
1: Yes, I'm doing very well, thank you, Daniel. And uh, yeah, this is what happens when the editors can't manage to uh, get someone to write articles. We have to write it ourselves. But honestly, look, I think, you know, we're sort of writers first and foremost, so it's a just a guilty pleasure, I guess, to be able to write an article in, in your own magazine. So, yeah, I enjoyed writing it.
0: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's almost like our articles end up in the magazine pretty much every other month. Mm-hmm. But hey, Kent, you've been on holidays a few weeks ago. Tell us how your holidays went. Oh, it was fantastic.
1: It, uh, I was uh, told by my employer that I had way too much annual leave built up and I should take some. So, I did. I guess in this age of COVID lockdowns, as it has been, I mean, thank goodness it's, you know, r- relaxing now when people are out and about. But at that point, yes, I decided a staycation was in order. So, yeah, lots of hanging around at home, did a bit of bush carpentry in the backyard and, you know, making things without measuring and a bit of gardening. and Yeah, it was really good. I, I really enjoyed it. It's good to, like, get active, use your hands Yeah,
0: do something practical. All those manly activities, though. (laughs) That's right. You are the ultimate man. (laughs) You know it, Daniel. Now, Kent, it's funny that we're talking about guilt today because we've also, in the office, been talking about our personalities. Now, I thought Mm -hmm. I had you down pat until it turned out that I didn't. But just to tell you a bit about my personality, in case you didn't know, is I would be typed in Myers-Briggs as an ESFJ. Now, one thing about ESFJs is stereotypically... We feel guilty about things a lot of the time. Oh, really? And we don't always express it, but we like we feel bad. Like, if we say something to someone that upset them or hurt their feelings or whatever, that's something that we'll then sit and think about for quite a Mm. while. I always thought that everyone is like that, but it turns out that some people, they process things in different ways, so they would probably not feel as guilty about it, Mm -hmm. potentially, but- for my personality type, we're the guilty feeling types.
1: Well, that that's really interesting. And I think, I think you're right. I think some personalities are, are more guilty than others. And that's just part of the, you know, wonderful diversity of humanity. But another aspect to it, I think, is that different cultures and perhaps at different times in history, there are different views of guilt. I mean, you know, we talk about, you know, honour and shame cultures where the big deal is... Not to be seen to be shamed in front of others, not to shame your family, you know this sort of thing. this is not so much a big deal in Western cultures. We are much more into you know ideas of guilt rather than rather than shame you know we 'd much rather say you know i don 't care what anyone thinks of me i 'm going to be true to myself. you know this idea of integrity is and, and the individual is really important to us, but I guess what I pointed out in this article and i 'd be interested to see if our, our listeners you know agree with us on this, is that guilt in some ways has sort of gone out of fashion. I mean, how many times have you heard, Daniel, you know, someone say something like, um, you know, how dare you judge me? Oh, wow, you're getting pretty judgy. And are you trying to make me feel guilty? You know, it's like the ultimate faux pas in some ways, isn't it?
0: It's actually interesting that you you talk about guilt in like the millennial generation. Mm. That's pretty much what you kick off your article talking about, that millennials are feeling guilty.
1: The way kids have been raised over the last few decades, and I would include myself in in this category, we were raised by parents who were very affirming, very warm, told us we were special, and, and this sort of thing. And you'd think... That being raised like that, we would end up with people with incredibly strong self-esteem and we'd be able to bear with the the knocks and the challenges of life. But it turns out that millennials and that research is showing this millennials are actually as you say daniel struggling with depression struggling with anxiety and the question is well why you know if they were brought up to you know as, as sometimes sarcastically you know said if they were brought up as you know special little snowflakes how is it that they now are feeling bad about themselves i mean you're, you're a guilty sort of person so <laughs> can you relate can, can you see this among your friends
0: I know that a lot of people from the baby boomer generation mm. tend to criticise millennials for all the things that you mentioned there. And there's, <laughs> there's definitely some rebuttals, but I don't really want to go into that sort of <laughs> But But, 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 but do,
1: do you think that parents like your your parents, parents of your friends were generally brought like your millennial generation up to to value yourselves, to, you know, not to be sort of guilty people? That Were they talking down to you, making you feel bad? It's not the impression I have.
0: It's like that thing that you mentioned earlier about the cultural context because I was brought up in a European family, so Mm -hmm. we were definitely punished for our misdoings and we weren't, (laughs) we weren't treated as if we were the best in the world. Mm. So. I think I was raised fairly well. I think I've never really felt entitled to anything. Mm. I've never felt like I have an ego because of the way I was brought up. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I do feel that the current generation that's being brought up is definitely being brought up in a similar sort of way. My girlfriend and I were at the park on the weekend. Yeah. And there was- black swans that were sitting around and they had their little young ducklings sitting next to them. cygnets That's right. These bunch of kids start coming up and start harassing the swan and the swan starts getting agitated like the mother swan. Mm-hmm. And these kids' mother is like standing two meters away and she's like, Oh, come on now, boys and the kids are like, hee hee and then they still harass it. They're like starting to like swing kicks at it the swan is getting really annoyed now and is almost trying to start to chase them away but the mother is just like oh it's time to go you know she's just like boys it's time and and that's it like (laughs) what you know and i told i told my girlfriend you know what my parents would have done if that was me i would literally be getting a hiding right now yes okay so but yeah it's interesting that that's the perception of my generation which is the millennials that we Mm -hmm. are like that actually which is probably true it's yep. probably true, but there's probably some sort of context to it as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. But look, I, I guess, you know, where I was going with this really is that there seems to be a perception nowadays in popular culture that the worst possible thing you can be is guilty, you know, to feel guilty. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, you've got to get over that. That's a that's toxic shame, you know. Mm. Uh, this is the sort of language that, that you hear people using, but... I guess in some ways I have a little bit of a, a different perspective. I mean I was a probation and parole officer for, you know, several years in a in a couple of states in South Australia and, and then in Queensland. So I spent a lot of time talking with you know people who had committed criminal offences. I spent a lot of time in courtrooms, you know, hearing about people's misdeeds. And let me tell you, Daniel, when it comes to sentencing, the reality of whether an offender shows Remorse for what they've done In other words, they're sorry In other words, they feel guilty in some way For what they've done That is actually really important And a magistrate or judge Will actually sentence an offender more harshly If they see that there's no remorse for for what has been done, and when I spoke, you know, was speaking to people on you know court orders, you know, after they'd been sentenced, and and sometimes they admitted, you know, very shamefacedly, oh yeah, I feel, you know, I feel really bad about what I did, I feel really guilty. I, I'd say to them, that's that's great, congratulations, because you, you know you did something wrong and you feel bad about it. That's exactly as it should be. If you weren't feeling bad for the fact that, you know, you'd hurt other people or whatever, that would put you in the category of a psychopath.
0: Well, actually, it's really interesting that you say that because this is something that my girlfriend and I have also talked about recently, which is people who feel no guilt or feel no emotion, which is the mm-hmm. the sociopaths, the psychopaths. Yeah, yeah. So, so you've come across those kinds of people in, before. Uh,
1: look, I, I have from from time to time people who just seem to have no insight into the fact that you know what they're doing is going to be harmful to other people, or what road they're going down, the consequences for what they're doing to other people. Yeah, they, they don't necessarily care about the effects on other people. I haven't come across very many of them. You know, thank goodness. The vast majority of people, even criminal offenders, are capable of guilt. And I guess my point is is that that's a healthy thing. Like to feel guilt when you've done something bad is actually a healthy thing because it's motivation to help you to do something different next time. So I guess in some ways, you know, I, I wrote this article, you know, in defense of guilt. Yeah, it's it's not a bad thing.
0: There's a line with guilt, isn't there? There's the guilt that goes too far where you're mm. you're literally crumbling under the weight of it. You're burdened by it. And then there's the guilt that is there to remind you, hey, you've just done something wrong here. Mm. You need to think about changing your actions. Or, you know, if you've hurt someone, hey, maybe you should go tell them. Maybe you should apologize, hey.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a, a very, very important distinction to make. Because you're right, There, there is a place where guilt does become, you know, toxic, where it becomes, you know, paralyzed where it's it sort of strangles who you are. It, it can strangle your ability to actually, you know, live an, an effectual life, to, you know, hold a job down to, be in a relationship, you know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. There is a point where, where guilt can be a real problem, where you do need to say, Hey, listen, I, I need to think about this. I've, I did what I did. I felt bad for it. I've, but I've now done what I can to make amends for that. I've apologized to the people I need to apologize to. You know, I've done everything I can do to, to make it right. I'm trying to live my life in, in a different way. I can't let this guilt to continue to, to drag me down. Yeah, there, there is a point where, where you do need to let it go. And look, other people looking on may struggle with that. They may say, you're a bad person. You did a bad thing. And you're forever tarred with that rush of, you know, of betraying or, or cheating or, or hurting someone or or whatever it is. But I think for the individual, it it is important to get to a a place where, where you can move, move on. And, And this is the problem, I guess, with a society that, that, sort of sometimes denies that guilt exists or denies that it can be a useful thing is that that society is one that then doesn't have much of an idea of how to deal with guilt when it becomes a, a reality.
0: Yeah, I actually really identify with that feeling or like even though, even if it's been like, you know, many years, many decades or whatever, that those feelings still linger there.
1: mm mm-hmm.
0: Now, there's one more angle that I want to cover over this, which is the feeling of being manipulated by guilt, which is something you touched on earlier. Mm. Now, is guilt can be a quite a powerful manipulation tool, kinda if someone is trying to control someone else's actions.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, I guess. I guess, <laughs> I guess in, in in the middle of what would be the word, you know, parodying this these things that people say, you know, how dare you make me feel guilty, you know, as you know, enraged, you know, as if anyone would dare to call them out on something that that they're doing wrong. On the other hand, yes, there there are people who have become very skillful at. Identifying the people who are vulnerable to guilt and to manipulating them by using guilt. That's an awful thing. Yeah, that's certainly something we we need to watch out for. You know, because if there are people who already feel pretty bad about themselves, who already are feeling guilty about stuff, and then someone else decides to, like, right, stick the knife in and, and twist it and use it to, to manipulate that person, well, yeah, that's obviously, you know, not a good thing. Guilt is a healthy feeling, when it motivates us to do better, mm. when it motivates us to action, it's less healthy when it paralyzes us or when it makes us vulnerable to the manipulation of others. So, yeah, there's, yeah, absolutely. I, I see where you're coming from.
0: So, where does guilt actually stem from? What is it that makes us feel this way, that like sort of sick feeling or that like troubling, bad feeling that we get
1: yeah that's a, that 's a good question, Daniel, and I think it could probably be answered on on several levels. I guess you know fundamentally from a you know a rational sort of scientific point of view we could say that this is about socialization. You know we human beings are social animals. We live in families, we live in communities and basically we need to get along harmoniously. So basically what that means is that there are rules, there are guidelines, there are expectations that people in those communities have of one another and when someone crosses, you know, one of those lines, well, the question is, well, how do you respond? How do you maintain community harmony? Obviously, at the extreme end, there are, you know, pretty severe punishments. But at the mild end, well, at that point, you know, it's effective, if someone, particularly someone in authority, says to you, hey, listen, you know, that's the wrong thing to do. You know, when you do that sort of thing, you put other people at risk. You, you hurt other people. You need to, you know, shape up, buddy. And if you feel guilty about that and it motivates you not to do it again, then... Um, you know, community harmony is maintained. So, you know, that, that's the sort of, you know, socialization, you know, um, social psychology
0: sort of answer to that question. But what, what's a biblical answer? Yeah.
1: Well, that, that's where I was headed next. You've, you've, uh, anticipated me really well there. Yeah. A, a biblical answer is that. There is more going on in our minds than simply what we have been socialized to believe and, and to feel. There is a spiritual reality out there. This is a spiritual reality that has, you know, been appreciated by, you know, by all cultures around the world for, you know, for centuries and, and millennia. And the, the biblical answer is that. God speaks to us and biblically the, the word used is the Holy Spirit. So this particular ex- expression of God or, or God operating in, in this particular way of the Holy Spirit is the presence of God being very close to us and even, I guess, you know, speaking to us with, within our hearts, with, within our minds, within our souls, if, if you prefer that language, to let us know, hey, What you're doing isn't right. You need to sort this out. So even if we're doing something that perhaps hasn't hurt anyone, you know, we we consider this a victimless crime. I've got no one to apologise to. But still, we have a sense that this is the, the wrong thing to do. And it's interesting that I guess you might say, well, you know, this... This is, you know, propaganda. This has been, you've been indoctrinated. It's been shoved down your throat so that you feel guilty for, for doing something. Yeah, there's a certain reality to that. But uh, I think there's, yeah, there's also a, a, a real, sense that, no, there is a spirituality going on there. There is an encounter with the divine and we feel uncomfortable and it lets us know that that something's gone wrong. It's interesting what the apostle Paul says about this. You know, he says, I mean, he's a Jew. So, you know, the Jews have the commandments and all the law and everything. and, And he says, yeah, we Jews have the law. You know, we know the difference between right and wrong. But he says, you know what? There are people who aren't Jews. They don't have the Bible. They don't have the law. But nevertheless, when they do something right or they do something wrong, they have this response in their spirits that confirms that what they're doing is right or tells them that what they're doing is wrong. This shows that in some ways, the law of God is written on their hearts and minds. And I guess, yeah, that's, that is the, the spiritual sort of level of, of what can be going on with,
0: with guilt. So, how did people in Bible times deal with guilt? What, how do they deal with their sin? Was it just a prayer to God that would help alleviate that, or was there a, a different process that they used to use at the time?
1: You well, know, this, this gets really fascinating because as you look through the, the Old Testament in particular, and I guess the, those books of Moses, probably the books of Exodus and, and Leviticus, you know, some of those first five books of, of the Bible, God speaks to Moses and, and Moses conveys this message to the tribes of Israel. And he says, you know, this is what God says you need to do if if you've done wrong. So, obviously, there's a bunch of laws to set out that, about how people are to relate to one another, the sort of laws of ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness, all the laws about the different festivals that happen during the year, all, all this sort of thing. But in amongst all that, there are a number of instructions for people who have done the wrong thing, people who have sinned, people who then have you know are guilty in in a legal sense. I guess they they've done the wrong thing. They're so they're now under God's displeasure in some way. Other people in their family or their you know their community, their tribe would know they've done the wrong thing, and they have to go and make that right. So, what the basis of dealing with guilt is in the Old Testament is. The sacrificial system—the the system of animal sacrifices—so there's this really interesting symbolism that's involved, where the person who has sinned brings a perfect, unblemished animal. Is it a domestic animal? So you know, it could be a, a sheep or a goat or a cow, or if, it, if it's a poor person, perhaps just a, a dove. But they bring this animal, this perfect, unblemished animal, to the, the tent, sort of temple that they had set up there in the de- in the desert. First of all, as the israelite tribes were you know crossing the desert but later on when they built a more permanent temple they'd bring them to to the temple and the sinner would lay their hands on that animal which was a symbolic way to transfer their guilt from them to their animal and then the animal would have its throat cut you know, it would be slaughtered, it would be, um, then, you know, burnt on the fire, or, you know, there were different, different ways of, um, of sacrificing those, those animals. And there's also a really fascinating service that happens in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where, you know, symbolically through the whole year, all this guilt had been transferred from individuals to animals, then the animals sacrificed in the tabernacle, And then, so then the tabernacle symbolically has all this sin built up in it. So then once a year, there's another ceremony where all the sin is symbolically transferred from the tabernacle onto another sacrificial animal that is then sent out and exiled out into the wilderness. So, there's this whole symbolism of the transfer of guilt from a person to, to animal and, and the punishment that happens, you know, whether it's slaughter or whether it's exile. So, really, really fascinating stuff.
0: So, why don't we do that anymore? If that was the practice back then of cleansing yourself of sin, of alleviating your guilt, why mm. isn't that a practice that still happens today?
1: I guess probably the best place to go to to answer that question is uh, the New Testament book of of Hebrews, and this gives the, the Christian answer to that question. And what the book of Hebrews basically says is, you know, what happened there in the temple in Old Testament times was a symbol. It was trying to teach us a lesson. It was trying to teach us about how terrible sin is and how it hurts people. It was trying to remind us that, Sin comes with a punishment, but it was also trying to teach us that God has a plan to transfer our sin from us to an innocent victim who would take the punishment for that sin in our place. And now, when Jesus Christ appears on the scene in the New Testament, John the Baptist, who's another New Testament character, looks at him in the crowd. He picks him out of a crowd and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
0: Uh, and that's in reference to how the lambs were slaughtered back in the tabernacle days, right?
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: So so
1: this is this is basically starting to give us the sense that wait a minute, all this symbolic transfer of sin to sacrificial animals over all those centuries was setting us up to understand that when the true Lamb of God arrived, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, He would be the sacrifice and the sin of the world would be laid on Him. He would die in the place of of those who, you know, who had accepted His sacrifice on, on their behalf. So, yeah, well, interestingly enough, even in Judaism, like, not... Too many years after Jesus, that second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. So the sacrificial system basically ended. The Bible tells us that at the very point where Jesus died, where he, he screamed out to, you know, to heaven, you know, it is finished, that there was this great big thick curtain in the temple of Jerusalem that was between the holy place and the most holy place that tore from top to bottom. So the belief is that was torn by an angel because obviously a human, you know, mm. would, would need to grab the bottom and
0: tear it from bottom to top. But and this was really torn thick, from top it, to bottom, really re- thick. Yeah, really thick curtain. Hey,
1: yeah, about a foot thick. I've I've heard it suggested. So, and and this is a, a symbol of the fact that the way right into God's presence in the most holy place had been opened. So Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the curtain who has been torn. Jesus is the one on whom the sins of the world are placed, who suffers in our place. So yeah, after that era in the christian church in particular jesus is spoken of as the lamb of god and when someone confesses their sins they they confess them and they claim that sacrifice of jesus and and they ask for forgiveness on the on the basis of what jesus has done for them and this is you know what is said in the new testament you know someone comes to the apostle paul and says you know what what shall i do to be saved and paul says it's simple believe on the lord jesus christ and you will be saved it becomes really simple so i guess in some senses in the old testament it's very concrete in some ways it's a physical sort of symbol that they had to go through in sacrificing an animal but it was symbolic in a sense because they were transferring their sins symbolically to that animal whereas in the new testament it becomes more spiritual there's no animal anymore it's now jesus but instead of it just being a symbol of something that was to come this is now the real thing this is jesus who does take away the sins of the world
0: yeah, and that's why people like Christians in particular view Christ's sacrifice with such high regard, hey, because of, because of how it changed the dynamic there as well. And also, it's really interesting that Christ's death did not take away the commandments, mm. but rather it was created a new era in which you can directly communicate with God in order to talk, discuss your guilt with him or to ask for forgiveness for your sins is that is that right
1: mm, mm. yeah look i mean it's it's really fascinating what what jesus did you know with the law with the concepts of sin and, and guilt uh, i think before that point things had been very concrete things had got very legalistic very black and white and and it was the case that people i think were looking for how much they could get away with in in some sense and when jesus arrived he said listen that is totally the wrong attitude to go about figuring out how to live a moral and, and an ethical life and, and a life that god approves of he, he said look what is most important in the law is mercy and justice. He said the foundation of the law is love. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the most important commandments, he said. So, in some sense, what Jesus did is that he took all these details of the law, all these legalistic, you know, do's and don'ts and do it this way, not that way, and this counts and that doesn't, and he said, look, I'm going to introduce a principle-based approach to doing the right thing, to living according to, to God's will. And it's a, it's one where the Holy Spirit, we talked about that, is, is in your heart where the Holy Spirit guides you and talks to you. And it's a life that is in keeping with the principles of God's government, where when you're looking at making an ethical decision, rather than looking down to find the exact, you know, chapter and verse and the exact regulation that covers this particular eventuality, what you're doing is asking yourself the question, is this loving towards God? is this loving towards my neighbour? You know, I need to be guided uh, by love. So, yeah, Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to abolish the law. He was very clear about that. But he said, you know, there is a more principled way, there is a better way, and that is the the way of love.
0: And just as we finish up, there is... A time that we can look forward to when guilt isn't going to be a thing anymore because sin isn't going to be a thing. Now, there was a, a vision that John from the Bible actually had when he was hanging out on the island Patmos. Mm. What did he see there about the future? Did he see a future of guilt or mm. did he see a future without guilt?
1: Yeah, well, this is fascinating because if if you make a study all through Scripture of this, you know, this sanctuary or tabernacle or the temple, whichever language you, you want to use, you'll see that at the very beginning, Right there in the desert, God said, you know, let them build a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. You know, this is God's desire to be with his people. And we see this right at the end of the Bible. We see the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven And and what the Bible says is, look, God's dwelling place, or the word in the KJV is tabernacle, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. So, It seems really clear that, you know, God's desire all along has been to be with his people. He wants relationship. He wants closeness. Sin has been a problem. Sin has been a barrier for that. And God has been working so hard to try to figure out the solution to this sin. That's what all this sacrifice was about. That was what Jesus, you know, coming down to earth was all about. But what's interesting is that John, the 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 apostle who writes the book of Revelation, he sees this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. He hears these beautiful words, but what he notices is that there is no temple in the city, which is fascinating because, you know, we think wouldn't the new Jerusalem be like the old Jerusalem with a temple, but it seems as if, you know, God has dealt with the problem of sin and therefore there's no more need for the temple. God's presence is now there with his people so it's not as if they have to go to a particular place in order to encounter him you know he's there with them you know at all times in and in all ways which is i think really you know what a lot of us you know really long for to have that close connection with with our creator
0: yeah absolutely Hey, Kent, we've run out of time, but uh, thank you so much for joining us on Signs of the Times radio this week and also sharing about an awesome hope for the future that we have, a future that is free of guilt.
1: Uh, thanks very much, Daniel. Really appreciate you uh, taking the lead.
0: Today's episode was based
1: on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media.